Amen. You may be seated. New Life East, Christ is risen. I said Christ is risen. Christ is risen. It is so good to see you this morning. My name is Andrew. If this is your first time with us, I'm the lead pastor here, and it's a joy to have you in our house this morning. You do look so lovely. Good job getting all spiffed out. You know, I used to, I had a hard time with Easter growing up because this was the one day a year when my parents just stuffed me into ill-fitting and uncomfortable clothes. And so there was this dark shadow that hung over Easter for me, but uh, now I like dressing up because I'm a grown-up. You kids in the house that are feeling that same way, the suffering will end. You'll grow up and you'll enjoy getting dressed up. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, Easter Sunday, this is the touchstone, the cornerstone of our faith. All that we believe and hold dear is built on what happened that weekend 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this in verse 14. He says that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. The Greek word there is empty. Everybody say empty. So is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, like all of the things that were prophesied and foretold in the law and the prophets, the whole story of scripture up to that point, the good life that Jesus lived, the amazing, miraculous life that he lived. All of it, Paul says, is fundamentally empty apart from the resurrection of the dead. This was the moment, as the song that we sang said, that somehow then came the morning that sealed the promise. That somehow all that what God did, all of the promises of God became yes and amen, that moment that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And so I want to take you to one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection this morning. I'll be in the book of John chapter 20, and I'll allow you to turn there real quick. Each of the gospel writers record uh, the resurrection from the dead, Jesus' resurrection, but they do it in slightly different ways. They're painting with different brushstrokes to try to give us some of their unique emphasis on like what was really at stake in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Like what was really going on there? And John, as we know, uh, John was called the beloved disciple. John had this incredibly special relationship with Jesus. He was part of the three, Peter, James, and John. But even among the three, he had a proximity to Jesus, understood something of the beauty of Jesus that not everybody really understood. And so I want to take you here to John chapter 20. I'm going to read this text of Scripture and then we'll pray. John writes, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, They have taken my Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started to the tomb and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. But Simon Peter, impetuous Simon Peter, We know that Peter is always the first to do everything in the Gospels. And so John is kind of outside the tomb, kind of looking in. He's not really sure what to do. But Simon Peter barrels in. He comes along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside and he saw and believed. They still didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead and Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And now Mary, everybody say now Mary. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The Greek word is stronger. She's weeping. You ever been there? Where the cry wasn't just something that was kind of just behind your eyes a little bit. And you were a little tiny bit sad, but it came from the very bottom 
of who you are. That's the cry that Mary is crying here. She stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you weeping? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you weeping? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him, sweet Mary. You're going to go and just carry away the body of a grown man yourself? But maybe she's stronger than we realize. We don't know. And Jesus turned and said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, let's pray. Resurrection is the surprise that none of us were looking for. A God who took a body is one thing. But that God could live on the far side of death. And take us with him to the far side of death. It's the surprise that none of us were looking for. This means more than any of us could ever wrap our minds around. Jesus, you know I have been following you my whole life, 40 years. And I'm praying for surprises, new surprises of resurrection this morning. And there are people in this room that have followed you 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. And still Jesus sneaks up and surprises us. Would you do that this morning? Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know the hope that you've been called to. I'm praying that in this house this morning. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we would know the hope that we have been called to. And I'm also praying for all of us in this room. Some of us have only known Jesus for a short amount of time. Some of us are groping in the dark looking for God. We're not sure if Jesus can be trusted this morning. Meet us. Meet us. Speak to us, talk to us, help us, draw us into the kingdom of God. We pray that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. You can't really understand what happened to Jesus when he was brought up out of the tomb unless you understand the biblical story that preceded it. And the law and the prophets, as we sang just a little bit ago, the law and the prophets all pointed forward to this day when God himself would break the barrier of death and establish a new creation on planet earth. The way that the biblical story trends in the Old Testament is not towards entropy and decay, as the scientists say. You know, that it'll all run out of steam and run cold one day and the universe would just be a cold, vacuous, empty, dead place. That's not the promise of Scripture. The promise of scripture is that there is something that God will do on the far side of death that makes all things new. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah talks about it. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 65 and verse 17, Isaiah says, See, I will create new heavens and new earth. Yeah, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. But 
be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. But this is what will happen, Isaiah says. They will build houses and dwell in them. And they will plant vineyards and eat of their fruit. And no longer where they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. And they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. And before they call, I will answer. I love that. Before the cry of the Lord even makes it to your lips, I'm already talking to you. Before they call, I will answer. And while they were still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's where the, scripture of story, the story of Scripture was always heading. This place of cosmic renewal where the world is quite literally put back together again. And as somebody read from earlier, death is banished from God's world forever. So when the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus' resurrection, they're gesturing at that very thing. They understand the resurrection as being a piece of that great promise of God that will come at the end of history. And John himself actually gestures to this in the story, John 20 verse 1 that we just read from. John opens the story by saying early on the first day of the week. Everybody say the first day. Early on the first day of the week. Literally in the Greek, it's the first of the Sabbath. It's the first of the Sabbath. You know what that means? This is the eighth day. And the early theologians of the church attach great symbolic importance to this. That what Jesus does on Good Friday into Holy Saturday is actually like that going into the tomb and resting in the tomb on the Sabbath That's actually the completion of the first creation that is marked by sin and death and destruction and decay. So this moment here, the early church theologians said, this is the first moment of the new creation. The eighth day has begun. And somehow, do you remember how the writer of Proverbs says that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter until what? The full light of day. They understood that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead actually is that. That it's the first day of the new creation dawning upon a world that's marked by sin and death. Paul gets at, that, gets at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we also read from earlier. Uh, Paul writes that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The what? The first fruits. What's the first fruits? Do you notice when you've been on your walks lately through the neighborhood? How all the trees are starting to bud and blossom. What are those? Those are the first fruits. And they're a signal that something is coming, right? That summer is coming. That at some point in the next month, all of a sudden, all of that is going to go into full bloom. And those little tiny buds become for us a picture of what the next weeks and months hold for us. That's what Paul is saying about Jesus. That Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is who who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be what? Made alive, but each in his own turn. 
Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. But I love this. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Brothers and sisters, where is the world headed? It's not headed to death. And it's not headed to emptiness. And it's not headed to coldness and to decay. It's headed to a place where one day all of the enemies of God, all of our enemies, will be put underneath God's feet and ours, and God will be all in all, and cosmic renewal will have taken place. It almost staggers the imagination to say it. But this is what we say, this is what we declare every week in the creed, that we look for the, but not just the resurrection of the dead, we look for what? The life of the world, everything will be new. This isn't something that you can predict just by looking at the world. It would have to be given to you as a gift. We are those who believe in cosmic renewal, and it happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But what I love and what staggers me about the New Testament is how intimate and personal the process of resurrection coming into the world is. The gospel writers, each in their own way, they could have gotten up and just kind of declared this big story, da-da-da-da, you know, the resurrection from the dead is happening, everybody believe. And instead, they tell these very enigmatic stories about the friends of Jesus wandering around the tomb of Jesus, asking questions. The person, the figure that we meet in this story is Mary Magdalene. Do you know who Mary Magdalene is? We don't know a ton about her in the Gospels, but among the women mentioned in the Gospel records, Mary Magdalene is mentioned the most, something like in the ballpark of about 12 times. We know that Mary Magdalene must have had some kind of a brutal upbringing. She was one from whom Jesus had driven out seven demons. So she was tormented in her mind and in her heart and in her body. And her encounter with the Lord changed her life. He cast the darkness out of her and he restored her to sanity of mind and sanity of hard. And the scripture tells us that she was wealthy. And so out of her gratitude for what Jesus did for her, she supported Jesus out of her means. She was one of the inner ring of the disciples following Jesus around and going everywhere with him. She loved Jesus. And more than that, you know, sometimes you'll hear preachers say that at the cross, Good Friday, that all of the friends of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, and everybody knew Jesus, you know, they fled from Jesus and they left him all alone in the darkness to just kind of fend for that moment by himself. But do you know that that is not true? When you read John chapter 19, John's account of the crucifixion, do you know who was actually still at the cross? John says that Mary's mama, or Jesus' mama was at the cross. Mary was there. And his aunt was there at the cross. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, was at the cross. And Mary Magdalene was at the cross with the beloved disciple. There were five of them to the bitter end, until Jesus breathed his last, they were there waiting on Jesus and tending to Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. And the crucifixion of Jesus was the worst thing that could have happened to her. It's like she finally found the thing that her life was all about. 
the meaning of her life, the person that puts her life back together and makes everything right. She finally found it. You ever felt like that in your life? That you finally found the thing that kind of like connects it all. And you remember when you met Jesus for the first time, I felt like that, right? That it connects all the dots. All of a sudden, everything has me. That's, that's what it was for Mary. And for her, the crucifixion was a complete disaster. It was the worst thing that could have possibly happened to her. And so the scripture says here in John chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, that Greek word there is a technical word for the hours between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. You ever been in that place where you lost something that was so important to you and so valuable to you that you just couldn't sleep? Every time you try to lay your head down on your pillow, you could have had the best day in the world. You finally composed your thoughts and you lay down to go to sleep. And all of a sudden the thoughts begin to rush back at you. And the questions begin to rush back at you. And the grief and the pain and the ache and the loss begin to rush back at you. And you lay awake. 11 p.m., midnight rolls around. Finally, 12.30, 1 in the morning, you finally begin, just out of the sheer exhaustion of your body, you begin to fall asleep. And then all of a sudden, at 3 or 3.30 or 4 in the morning, you begin to stir because those thoughts have come back to you and they've begun to torment. Have you been there before? Does anybody in this room know what I'm talking about? That's where Mary was. What did they do to him? How could this happen? A man who was so good and who was so kind, who only went about doing good and healing all of those who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him, who only fed the hungry and clothed the naked and took care of those who were on the outskirts, who only spoke truth from his heart and loved everybody. How could they do this to him? How could they take him from us? And so do you know what she does? Out of her grief and her pain, she takes spices and she goes to the tomb Because if Jesus is dead, the very least that she can do is go and anoint his body and continue to tell him how much she loved him. And so she goes to worship Jesus. And when she gets there to the tomb, she finds insult added to injury. That the stone has been rolled away. And when she looks in, Jesus isn't there. Twice. She says it in verse 2. She says, they have taken the Lord away and I don't know where they put him. And then the angels begin to question her just a little bit later in verse 13. The angels go, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they've put him. Friends, Mary lost the thing in life that was most valuable to her. She lost the body of Jesus. Jesus was taken away from her. And in that, she also lost her contact with God. That in the losing of the physical body of Jesus, she felt as though she lost her contact, not with just some guy. She doesn't just say, they have taken this man out of the tomb. She says, they have taken what? My Lord out of the tomb. And I have no idea where he went. I, I think, guys, that it's in the nature of our experience that when we lose the things that are most precious, and most valuable to us, we also have this way of feeling as though we've lost our contact with God, don't we? It's an existential interruption. Remember the middle part of my high school years were some of the sunniest and the happy years of my life, 15, turning the corner into 16, turning the corner into 17. That like two-year window was like this incredibly delightful and happy time for me. I finally started to get a handle on some things with my health that felt really good, Felt like I had a handle on my studies, which felt really good. 
Uh, during that time period, I stopped being a sophomore and became a junior. I became an upperclassman. Thanks be to God, leaving behind those awful early years of high school. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. And then to top it all off, towards the end of that 16th year, Mandy and I started dating. Hallelujah, Andrew got a girlfriend. <laughs> it was amazing. You ever have those periods? just feels like everything falls into place and you're just thankful and happy. And I remember there was about a really a significant year stretch in there where I just like every morning, I remember waking up in the morning and just feeling the goodness of God. Like life is wonderful and it's to be celebrated and everything is great. And how can I I'd see people that would kind of walk around with a mopey look on their face and I think, how in the world can you be so sad and distraught? Don't you understand how good and Truly wonderful and beautiful life is, you know. And I went along like that for a while. And then it was something during my senior year. I can't, I, to the, for the life of me, I cannot put my finger on what happened or when exactly it happened. But it was somewhere in the middle of my senior year. All of a sudden, it just felt like the happiness got taken away. And nothing in my life had really dramatically changed. But all of a sudden, this like gloom began to fall upon me. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And I didn't have the language for it at the time. But I know now looking back, that I was entering into a very serious depression that had really no obvious causes that I could point to. And so the end of my senior year goes by, my freshman year of college and sophomore year of college, and I'm looking around at all of the good things that are kind of happening to me, and I have every reason to be happy, and yet I cannot be happy. Some of you know this experience really well. But I, I lost the physical experience of joy, and that would have been bad enough just by itself. But the tradition that I was raised in had this way of talking about how like when you're really close to God and you're really flowing in the life of the Spirit and Jesus is really real to you, then you're always going to be ecstatically happy all the time. And yet I wasn't. And so it made me think that something was broken in my faith. Something is not, I'm not doing this right. Something is not working here. And so it's not just that my sort of mental health was shifting on me, but I also felt as though I had lost my contact with God. And I remember how much of a struggle prayer was during that season and how much of a struggle worship was during that season, groping in the dark for answers, trying to reestablish my contact with God. Have you ever been there? I think about my wife, Mandy. We, got, we were engaged to one another in the spring of 2000, March of 2000. An incredibly joyous and happy time. And the families got together right after the engagement to celebrate and think about the wedding and how are we going to do it and what's it going to look like. It was an amazing time. And one week after I proposed to Mandy, her dad passed away. Mid-50s, died on a Monday morning of a massive heart attack. And I will never forget what that was like for my wife. Remember one of my good friends, I had gone back to college. I was up, Mandy was living in Wisconsin. I was down in Oklahoma in college and she called me with the news that her dad had passed away and she's sobbing on the other end of the phone. And I said, I'm on the way. So I called one of my friends and we jumped into the car together, drove through the night. And I remember getting to where Mandy was staying and I remember hugging her. And that like Mary stood by the tomb weeping. That, that guttural, visceral, it comes from the pit of who you are. That was me sobbing in my arms. And I remember watching over the next months and how things unfolded for Mandy. And she'll tell you this story. That in losing her dad, the person that she loved, the person that she loved the most in life, that she felt as though she had lost her contact with God. 
She'd stand in worship services and be in prayer meetings and all of the feels that she used to have about God and God is amazing and God is good. I remember watching her going, God, where are you and how could you abandon me? And at this time in my life, we literally just got engaged like one week ago. And the wedding is only five months away. You couldn't have just delayed it for six months? What? God. Have you ever been there? Groping in the dark for answers, shaking your fist at heaven, wondering where God went. So I've been a pastor in this community now for a little over two years. And I've sat with so many of you in this room. And I've heard the stories about the things that happened to you in your childhood. I've heard the stories about the things that happened to you at your previous church. I've heard the stories about the things that have happened to you in your marriage. And I hear this story, the Mary story, happening over and over and over again. And it confirms for me the fact that when we feel as though those things that are most valuable in life are taken away from us, it also seems as though God is taken away from us. The Welsh poet R.S. Thomas put it like this in one of his poems. He said, often I try to analyze the quality of the church's silences. You picture a man sitting in church all by himself. That's the scene that he sets here. He says, is this where God hides from my searching? I have stopped to listen after the few people have gone to the air recomposing itself for vigil. It's weighted like this and stones group themselves about it. These, he says, are the hard ribs of a body that our prayers have failed to animate. Shadows advance from their corners to take possession of places the light held for an hour. The bats resume their business. The uneasiness of the pews ceases. And there is no other sound in the darkness but the sound of a man breathing, testing his faith on emptiness, nailing his questions one by one to an untenanted cross. You ever been there? Where you just felt like you had questions that had no obvious answers. And you come into the presence of God in your devotional time. Or you read inspirational literature and you're trying to find God. You go out in nature and you're trying to reestablish contact with God. Or you sit in a worship service like this and everybody else has got their hands lifted high. And they're worshiping and they're praising. And it seems like they've got it made in the shade and life is amazing. And meanwhile, what you're doing is one by one, you're nailing your questions to what feels like an untenanted cross. Where is God? And that question, guys, where is God? That is the question that haunts all of our lives. And I've got good news for you. The gospel knows exactly where God is in those places. Look back down at the text of Scripture, starting at verse 14. At this, the Scripture says, Mary turned around And she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, what? And she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She she realizes that it's Jesus. Now here's something you got to pay attention to this. And with this, we'll very quickly begin to make our way into communion. It doesn't come through in the English, but it's present in the Greek. All throughout John's gospel, everybody refers to Mary as Maria. It's the name that she would have been referred to in the marketplace or by casual friends, you know. It's like I have four kids and one of my kids, my third is Bella. 
Isabella Louise. Isabella Louise Arndt. And everybody knows Bella as Bella. And you get to know her just a little bit or you hear her name called out at school. It's Bella. That's who she is. But her dad knows her as something else. I call her Louise, my little girl. And there's a shift that happens here in the narrative. All throughout the Gospel of John, everybody refers to Mary as Maria. But here, when Jesus speaks her name, he doesn't call her Maria. He calls her Mariam. The name that her parents would have used for her when she was a little girl. Before life got complicated, before all of the pain set in, before the demon possession took place, before all of the craziness and the chaos of her life, he goes back to her primal, innocent identity before all the darkness. He calls her by the name that only her parents maybe would have known, Louise. <laughs> and I don't know what that name is for you, but I know that Jesus speaks to us when he comes to us. He speaks to us in a language that only we can understand. And he calls us by an identity that hearkens us back to the things that are most fundamentally true about us. And somehow in that moment, just like Mary, our eyes are open to the goodness of the Lord. Before things got crazy, before the relationship spun out of control, before the project failed, before the dream fell through, before everything fractured for you, Jesus knew who you were and he knows who you are. Do you know what the scripture actually says about the redeemed? It says that at the end of all of things, those who have persevered will receive a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to those who receive it. Do you understand that God knows who you are better than you know who you are? And the moment when everything turns around is the moment when we're groping in the dark trying to figure out how to put it back together again. When we're groping around in the dark, trying to figure out how to reassemble the shattered pieces of our lives, when we're groping in the dark, trying to find the thing that brought us so much meaning and now has been snatched away from us, and all of a sudden we hear the voice behind us. Andrew. Rick. Colin. Luann. Tim. Anna. Amanda, we hear our names spoken and all of a sudden we wake up and resurrection touches our lives. I'm saying to you this morning that that's how it comes to us. It is always intimate and it's always personal and it's always in a language that we can understand. And I remember going through a particularly devastating period. It felt like so many things had been taken away and Loss hit me hard. And I was in that place, groping in the dark for answers, trying to find God. And I remember being on a ministry trip to London and I was in a church service there. And the guy who led the service did a beautiful job. And it was one of those services where all of a sudden I began to feel my heart burning within me, like God is about to do something, you know, and I don't really know what. And it had been many months since I'd had a real intimate contact with God. And I'm sitting there in the service and he's leading and saying what he's saying and I'm feeling my heart beginning to burn within me and then the guy who led the service did something very remarkable. He had everybody stand up and he said, you know what I'm going to invite you to do here is, he said, I'm going I'm to invite you just to begin to sing in the spirit. 
He said, and some of you will know what that means because you were born and raised in church circles where we did this. And I was born and raised in a church circle that did that, where we sang in the Spirit. When you sing in the Spirit, it's not controlled by any band leader. Nobody really directs it. The church just begins to sing spontaneously from its heart. And those that have their prayer language begin to sing, sing in their prayer language and tongues. And those that don't, they sing in their native language, whatever it is. And there is this like miraculous thing that happens when you're singing in the Spirit that somehow all of the songs come together and they merge into one and it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. And for me, in that moment, it had been like a long time, like years since I'd ever experienced anything like that. And I remember standing to my feet and all of a sudden the congregation that was gathered there begins to sing. And their songs begin to rise up into the heavens and it was, well, it was, a light, it was like a door had opened in the heavens and all of a sudden God's presence began to pour out on us. And I don't know what it meant to everybody else that was sitting there that day. But for me, that was the language of my childhood. It was the language of something that I knew about God, but I had forgotten. And God knew what I needed in that moment. To remember that, to remember the goodness of God, to remember the outpouring of the Spirit, to remember that moment when you have contact with God and God sweeps you up into the heavens. There was something about that moment. All of a sudden it was like... It's the reminder that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. I've got a future because he lives. And this morning, I don't know what the thing is for you. I don't know what the place of deep ache is. I don't know what the place of pain is. I don't know where you feel abandoned and forsaken. I don't know where you feel like Mary, where it's like they have taken the most valuable things from me. They have taken God from me. And I don't know where they've put him. I don't know what that is for you. But this is what I do know. That you might have lost God, but God could never possibly lose you. And he knows you. And he sees you. And this morning he's calling you by name. And the invitation of Easter is to rub the tears out of your eyes and to turn around and to see that he's standing right next to you and he never left you. Would you stand this morning? And I'm gonna invite you to do something this morning, all of us from your heart. Whether you've been in this for 60 years or six months, or whether you've never crossed the threshold of faith and put your trust in Jesus at all, I'm going to invite you just to repeat this prayer after me. Me, say, Jesus, I trust you. I hear you calling my name. And I believe that I belong to you. So here and now, I put my life in your hands. Show me your goodness. Show me your love. Give me hope and help me see your face. And so Jesus, now we pray that you would seal that work in every heart in this room. <laughs> that you like Mary, you're awakening us to the hope of resurrection and you're making us witnesses to the world of how life can be because Jesus is alive. So come, we pray, come, we pray. Wake our hearts up. Help us pour it out with gratitude this morning. And meet us at your table, we're praying. In the name of the Father, 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Let's sing this song of worship in response. And then Pastor Collins is going to lead us to the table. Surrender 
The Lord be with you. Awesome. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Give him thanks now. Would you speak them audibly, the things that he has done to you and for you? Every time that Jesus came to somebody after his resurrection, he would say, peace be with you. Just like I have spoken over you, peace be with you. And these elements that we all hold in our hands are evidence of Christ's coming to you. And not only did he come to you on Good Friday and then raised from the dead on Easter, we continue to take communion because it's an example that he keeps coming to you. He is coming to you this morning. And the table is open to all those who've called upon the name of the Lord. Scripture says that they shall be saved. And when we do that, that, that you are forgiven. And so if this is you this morning where you're holding these elements in your hand and you see Christ coming to you and your heart is being melted and you're saying, I, I want this, then this table is for you. Would, would, we, would, we, would we look to Jesus and ask him to open our eyes that we would see the his goodness in our lives. The Lord Jesus, on the, the night that he is betrayed, after he'd given thanks, just like we have done, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you receive this gift of God? The same, this, this, the same time after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the cup that, that washes you white as snow. Whatever you've done leading up to this moment doesn't matter because God sees you as his, as his own child, forgiven and loved. Would you receive that, that new identity when you drink the cup? Drink it. Thank you, Jesus. This is how we, res we respond. Would you sing the doxology together? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, Lift up your hands. Receive this benediction as you go. New life east. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. If you prayed that prayer after the message for the first time, we would love to pray with you about that, introduce you to a relationship with Jesus. Join us for fellowship hour. If this is your first time with us, 
We party in between the services with donuts and coffee and tea and all the good things. So join us in the in Connect Central for Fellowship Hour. Enjoy your afternoon, New Live East, your love. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next Sunday.